The Weekly Hugh Demon. Okay, another week of The Weekly Demon. Sitting back here with uh, my big Carl glass of wine. I was never a big uh, fan of Friends, but it cracked me up that Courtney Cox character drank out of a glass called Big Carl. This, gla- this wine glass I have probably holds, I'm guessing, about not quite a half a bottle of wine. Probably about 40% of a bottle of wine, so I call it my, my miniature Big Carl. But we have a good show this week. Um, going to get past the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, going to go basically to the year 650. Yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. Going to have a little meditation, I guess you might call it, on Thanksgiving. It's a week early, but I think the whole month of November is kind of a Thanksgiving type month, so we're going to be doing that. Going to be talking some Taoism. We've got a couple of topics. I think you're going to enjoy the show. Six fifty, the year six fifty A.D. All this talk we've had about the fall of the Roman Empire, when exactly did it fall? We don't really know. I would adamantly maintain, as would the bulk of people who know about this area, would adamantly maintain it did not happen in four seventy six. So when was the fall over? This gradual decline. I'll go with 650, and I'm taking that from a book called The Inheritance of Rome by Chris Wickham. Chris Wickham I once heard described as, I think, the dean of um, late antiquity, early middle age history. I think he's out of Oxford University, very learned. And here's what he, he talks about, you know, was it 500, 550? Here's what he says. In the end, by 650, in every one of the post-Roman kingdoms, People would cease to think of themselves as Roman, but rather as Frankish or Visigothic or Lombards. That's a quote in chapter 4. So, you know, the takeaway from these three discussions on the fall of Rome is, okay, by 650 it was over. You had the Byzantine Empire out east in Constantinople, what we now know as Istanbul. But the connection to Rome had been pretty much severed, had been going downhill for the past 250 years, by 650, it was over. If you lived with the Franks, you probably considered yourself a Frank, not a Roman citizen. So at that point, you can consider yourself in the Dark Ages. And again, look back, we talk about when I first started talking about the Middle Ages. You had the fall of Rome, and then you kind of go into the Middle Ages. But the Middle Ages proper, you know, probably didn't start until about the year 1000. You had this gap from the fall of the Roman Empire to about 1,000. No, it's really better called the Dark Ages. You know, to call 1300 or 1400 the Dark Ages is just incorrect. Uh, the Dark Ages pretty much go from 650 to 1000. In the year 1000, Europe starts to emerge from the Dark Ages. They go into what I believe is properly called the Middle Ages. And then from there you go to the Renaissance, etc., etc. Now, why are they dark? Well... Because everything sucked. They they suck so bad that there is 
there are a handful of historians out there um, who have posited the phantom time hypo hypothesis. And you can actually Google this and read about it. Their hypothesis is that the years 614 to 911 never happened, um, including the reign of Charlemagne, you know, around the year 800. They basically said it was a conspiracy by the Pope Sylvester and the Holy Roman Emperor and the Byzantine Emperor to put themselves at the all-important year of 1000, to be ruling the year of 1000. And so they basically told their chroniclers to fabricate 297 years of history just to make it up out of the whole cloth. Okay, and and it's crap. Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to argue for the phantom time hypothesis. It's, it's just it's crap. It doesn't hold up. It didn't happen. But what's so bizarre is uh, these are intelligent men. They have a following, and it's halfway believable because that's how much things sucked from 614 to 911. We just don't have evidence of trade. We don't have a lot of artifacts. We don't have a lot of new buildings. We don't have new manuscripts of great thinkers. It's just you literally have this 300-year period where things were just really, really bad. Uh, one historian I know calls it the, the Iron Age. You know, basically you have the Muslims slamming in to southern Europe and northern Africa and the Holy Lands in the 7th century, the 600s. And then you had the Vikings start coming in in the late 700s. And basically, Europe was under constant siege. I mean, the Muslims themselves, they took Jerusalem in 638, Egypt in 641, um, the island of Rhodes in 654. They assaulted Constantinople in the 670s. They hit Sicily in 669. And so they took the Mediterranean. They did a lot of things, but they disrupted the grain trade irrevocably you know, from, from northern Africa. They turned the Mediterranean from... Um, uh, um, a hub of commerce and a basically a hub of pirates. Uh, basically, everything went to crap after, <laughs> basically after 650 because of the Muslims. Okay, and that and that's not politically correct, and no one wants to admit that this day, these days. But that was uh, Henri Perrin's theory, and that's that's really the takeaway. That's really, in my opinion, what what caused the complete break with the Roman Empire. Its old way of doing things. Its old economics and commerce um, it was the Muslims disrupting the trade from Egypt from northern from northern Africa with the, with the grain and disrupting trade within the Mediterranean that caused this complete snapping and caused all of Europe to fall into the dark ages and then you combine the fact the snap of commerce combine that with the invasions coming from the south then combine that with a hundred years later invasions and we're going to talk about the Viking invasions it's just stunning people don't appreciate what a what a force these people were. Um, the Vikings coming in from the north. And you basically have, you have the Dark Ages. And again, it was so bad during this time period that you had this phantom time hypothesis, which, which people actually believe, and, and, and with good reason. November might be my favorite month of the year. It, it's, it's hard to say. And part of that's no doubt because I've had a lot of kids and they go, they go back to school and they have a ton of school activities and sports and marching band and everything else. 
And in November, it all comes to a halt, and you pretty much have a month off. I'm also not much of a hot weather person, so when the weather turns cool, I'm cool with that. I mean, I, I like having, like, sleet in my face, at least initially. I guess it gets a little old come January. I, I, I like the way that November is what I call the dying month. I mean, as a Catholic, we come out of the gate with All Souls Day on November 2nd. And we recollect the people we've lost over the past year. Everything outside is dying. You know, Persephone is undergoing her descent, you know, in Greek mythology. And the world's going dark. I like you know, daylight savings time ending. It's kind of like you know, like enforced downtime. I can't be out in the garden running around. I'm not expected to be outside in the garden or running around. I have to get back inside with my books and studies and, and downtime. And I, I just kind of like it just in general. I also like it because it is the month of Thanksgiving. I mean, there's a reason Thanksgiving is celebrated in November. People are bringing in their their harvest and being thankful for the blessings in life. And I think I think that's that's a very important thing, which I'll get into here shortly. Needless to say, I also really really like Thanksgiving. Um, Christmas is my favorite holiday, but Thanksgiving it's second place. Uh, that that four days of mandatory downtime, unless you're in retail. Um, and I used to be, I used to work at Kmart, and it was kind of brutal, but I don't, don't work there anymore. Um, I, you really love that four days, you know, Black Wednesday, when everyone gets together and go to the bar for the biggest bar night of the year. That, that to me is just, that's just excellent. That's great. Um, makes it kind of hard to be thankful on Thursday when you're hungover as a dog. There's more, there's more to thankfulness than this, that. Anyways, let's start off with the whole idea that November is the dying month. It's a paradox. But by thinking about death, you better appreciate life. In his book, The Virgin Eye, Robin Daniels, you know, he, he points out that uh, thankfulness, the attitude of thankfulness itself is a blessing. He, he notes that constant thanksgiving makes a person more alert and attentive, more responsive to his blessings. That thank, an attitude of thankfulness opens up your worldview. <laughs> My wife Marie, she has a pretty good disposition. Whereas I tend to be somewhat sour, and you know, you know, I I make this up, but there might be a car accident, and you know, the the traffic's backed up for two hours, and I'm just you know pitching a fit, and she's like, well, just just be thankful you're not the one in the car accident, and I make, and I was like, there's always something to be thankful for. I'm I'm thankful that a dog hasn't bit off my genitals, you know, and and I say that in exasper, you know, an exasperated tone, but you know, I should be thankful a dog hasn't bit off my genitals. And the point is, no matter how bad things are, things could always be worth, worse. Um, so that there's always something to be thankful for by, you know, having that attitude. And, again, and just try it, by the way. Just, just try to start being thankful for everything you see. Every day, every moment, every hour. Start trying to be thankful for everything. When you get ready to complain, which is one of my faults, but when you get ready to complain, start trying to think what you can be thankful for. This also has a, a, a huge benefit that I had never thought about until Robin Daniels pointed out to me in The Virgin Eye. By being thankful, you're better able to live in the present moment. Okay, Th- this is huge. Um, the need, the importance of living in the present moment has been emphasized by spiritual writers for a long, long time. I mean, C.S. Lewis, uh, Mother Angelica, the Greek Orthodox writer Callistos Ware, the desert monks, 
over and over and over again. They talk about the importance of living in the present moment. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, the, the early 20th century positive, uh, logical positivist, not a religious man at all. He talked about the, you know, I think, I think he talked about the eternal moment of the now, something like that. The problem with that advice, you know, to live in the present or live in the now is that to me, it's kind of like advising someone, Hey, be happy. Or someone's, you know, playing a, playing a game. You advise your kid when it's like, that's not telling me anything and telling someone, Hey, live in the present moment is excellent advice. Just like telling someone to be happy is excellent advice or tell someone in a race to go faster. That, 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 that's good advice. I mean, if, if, you know, but it doesn't tell you anything about how to live in the present moment, how to be happy, how to run faster, how to win. So I've, I've understood for decades now the importance of living in the present moment. And here I am. I, I first read about that concept probably in my early twenties. 30 years later, I still suck at it. But you know what? I read that Robin Daniels book a year, a year and a half ago. And he points out, Hey, the attitude of thanksgiving if you if you had the attitude of thankfulness that by its nature shoves you into living into the present moment that works from personal experience i'll testify that works but don't take my word for it just go try it yourself go try to be thankful and you'll start seeing all sorts of other blessings including the ability to live in the present moment come with it We're going to talk about the Vikings in more detail later, but I want to mention this one thing during this episode, in case I forget it later. I heard recently someone speculate that the reason Scandinavian women are so hot is because the Vikings would raid into England, France, or wherever, and Russia, and grab all the best-looking women and take them back to Scandinavia and make them into their wives. You know, I was going back to that Chris Wickham book on the inheritance of Rome. I came across this description of a typical week for an Irish king. And I'll just, I'll just read it to you. Um, Sunday was for drinking ale. Monday was for making judgments. Tuesday was for playing a board game. Wednesday was for watching deer hounds hunting. Thursday was for sexual intercourse. Friday was for horse racing. And Saturday was again for judging cases. Maybe been pretty good to be an Irish king. I'm not sure about that Thursdays only thing, but otherwise it sounds like a pretty sweet existence. This week's podcast recommendation, I highly recommend Philosophize This. It's by a kid named Stephen West, and I say kid because he appears to be 30 years old. You wouldn't know from the tone of his voice. Does an amazing job. I'm highly, highly impressed. I'm bummed out I hadn't discovered him until um, about a month ago. But yeah, check him out. He does a great job breaking down um, all different areas of philosophy. Highly, highly recommended. Whenever I do a more detailed segment, I usually go back and consult usually two or three books I've read in the past. 
and then listen to a podcast or two on the sub- subject. Um, maybe look at a Wikipedia entry or something like that. And that's where I found this uh, Philosophize This Podcast. I wanted to listen to his uh, Taoism episode. And I listened to it and I thought, oh my gosh, this kid nails it. He did a really, really good job explaining it. And that, incidentally, is a good way to test anything you see on the internet. As we know, you can't really trust anything. Everything's suspect. But if you have a subject you know something about, go listen to what that podcaster says or what this internet resource says about it and see if it's accurate. That's how I came to trust Wikipedia in large part. I looked up two or three legal topics. I read them and I was like, my gosh, um, this thing is 80% accurate and there's no bad errors. It's just maybe as it applies to Michigan law, it's not quite right, but for a general concept, it was really, really good. Longtime readers of the Daily Demon know I really enjoy funny quotes and anecdotes. The entire shelf of my library is dedicated to quote books and literary stories. One of my favorites is a guy named Oscar Levant. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, but he was a pianist, a composer, a radio and TV personality, kind of a big name in Hollywood. He, he wrote a, a book of memoirs called uh, Memoirs of an Amnesiac. A real funny guy. I got a couple quotes here that I really like. Behind the phony tinsel of Hollywood lies the real tinsel. A pun is the lowest form of humor when you don't think of it first. I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin. When I was young, I looked like Al Capone, but I lacked his compassion. When I was younger, I was, I was always a Christian, and I used to joke around that um, I understood the theory real well, but I wasn't very good at the practice. And I was, again, always kind of joked about that. When I became Catholic, I realized that's that's a bit pretty big freaking problem, uh, because the theory, the knowing, is not as important as the practice, or the being. And the Catholic Church would always teach that the simple peasant woman... Um, silently saying her rosary in her rocking chairs a far better person than the greatest scholar you know who can't keep his temper in check or cheat on his wife or whatever and so being good is always better than understanding good well when you get to Taoism you pretty much have that attitude on steroids you know the the famous saying is someone asks you what is the Tao the proper response is I don't know. You know, probably the best way to figure out what the Tao is is emphasize what it is not. And this is also a venerable tradition in Christian theology. It's kind of called the apophatic way. So when someone like the pseudo-Dionysus, an early Christian writer, was trying to explain what God is, he started by explaining what God is not. Tao is the same way. If you want to know what the Tao is, you have to know what the Tao is not. And the Tao is not what I call A cubed. It is not aggression. It is not ambition. It is not accumulation. It is not S squared. It is not striving. It is not success. 
So if you want to reach the Tao, you need to become like the Tao. To become like the Tao, you need to avoid the things that the Tao is not. So you avoid the attitudes of accumulation, aggression, ambition, striving, success. And obviously, to avoid those things that are not the Tao, you want to adopt those attitudes that are opposite of those. And you could be like, well, they'd be laid back, uh, detachment from material possessions. But the Tao, you know, um, they'd say you can't think about it like that. Because once you start striving for those virtues, you're wrapped into the, you know, the either or, the yin-yang type problem. Uh, you, you can't think about it in those terms. You know, so what is one to do? And I think, the best I can figure, the Tao says, you just adopt an attitude of playfulness. And, and that's, and, and I, and I love that concept. Uh, you'll find a lot of philosophers talking about, you know, the value of, of play, of playfulness, lightheartedness. Uh, one of my favorite writers, James Shaw, uh, wrote an entire book called The Unseriousness of Human Affairs. I, I think I have that name right. I'll, I'll post it to the show notes page. And basically the highest things in this world are highest because they're not serious. And so it's the attitude of playfulness, I think, is really the hallmark of the Tao. And I find it interesting in this regard that a lot of like modern, um, like I, I can call it neurological studies, are corroborating this. There's a book I really like. It's called Wrapped, R-A-P-T, by Winifred Gallagher. And she notices, she notes in one part of her book, um, it's a great book, by the way. It addresses all sorts of issues regarding what your proper mental attitude should be in this world. And I'll probably go, and go into it in greater depth in a different podcast. But she, at one point, makes the point, or points out that um, if you blur the distinction between work and play, that is the hallmark of the focused life. And I, you know, I think there's, and I think the Tao would agree to that. So, so yes, you have to go to the office, you have to go to work. But approach your work, approach the office life with an attitude of play. That makes it kind of tough sometimes. Uh, like if you have to manage the office and then the, the people you're managing, they're under you, want to have this attitude of play. Um, that's why I don't think I'm much of a manager. Um, because I, I, I try to keep this attitude of play or lightheartedness and not really thinking about it too much. Um, but I think it's the attitude of play. Marx added to the Tao, and I think modern neurological studies, psychological studies, are showing that this constant attitude of play is the healthiest, which is also the most Tao-like. And again, I'm kind of struggling here with these concepts, but I would I would further point out that the attitude of play, I believe, is also the attitude of prey. You know, Robin Daniels in that book, The Virgin, The Virgin Eye. Points out that prayer really isn't just a set time of prayer. Prayer is a way of life, and I and I think the perfect way of life is a playful way of life, because if you if you have the attitude of prayer in your day to day life, you have with you at all times this attitude that the stuff on this earth this isn't that important. And I think and again this this attitude of prayer combined you know that leads to an attitude of play is very Tao-like. And again, I'm struggling a bit with the concepts, but I think I've conveyed enough of it in this segment for you to, to get a better feel for the Tao and maybe even how to apply it to your day-to-day life. Although, with all these type of concepts, um, I'm the first to admit theory is one thing, application is another. And 
hopefully I'm conveying these concepts to you and you can take them into your day-to-day life, but it, it is it is difficult and probably takes some uh, contemplation and downtime to sort through them in your own head. That's it for this week's episode. Hey, I'm going to be in Las Vegas this coming week. It's the annual Weekly Demon Symposium. Nah, I'm just kidding. I'm going out there on business, though. So next week we'll have a special episode. It'll be pretty much all things Vegas. So kind of take a week off the more serious topics. Kind of talk a lot about Vegas. Mostly because I'm going to be out there all week and I'm not going to have time to make a podcast. But I don't think I can do better than Vegas anyway. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Remember, go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review. That helps me enormously. And make sure you're using the new feed. If you see a picture of the Alpena, Michigan Harbor, and it doesn't have wording on it, you're looking at the wrong feed. Go to the new feed. It says the Weekly Demon with Eric Chesky. Also, check out the Facebook page. Like or follow, whatever you want. There's also the Weekly Demon Twitter feed. As always, thanks for listening. Oh,